Hello, my friends, Nigel here, and welcome to Backable, the podcast where we explore the top performance habits in both business and life. Today, Tim sits down with Nick Hewlett, the General Manager of Media, Communications and Community at the ICC T20 World Cup 2020. Now, Nick has had a long career in the media and communication space. He led the division at Collingwood Football Club in the early 2000s. He's worked with government and ASX 200 companies while stationed in Singapore, right up to his current position at the T20 World Cup. And though the sectors have varied, one thing has remained constant. He's always worked with top-performing people and teams in high-pressure, high-visibility roles. It's a great discussion where we dive into the lessons learned along the way and what mindset it takes to not only survive, but thrive in those type of pressure cooker environments. Hope you enjoy. I really do appreciate you coming on. I know we don't know each other, but I think we're probably going to have very similar things to talk about. I was lucky to play a few sort of junior elite teams coming up, but just sort of, you know, it was state baseball, uh, got a reserve game at Collingwood, right. you know, back in the day, we probably crossed oh, paths really? in, a, in a thing, but never, never quite good enough yeah. to be elite. But the thing that I loved about it, and I'm sure you are, is just being in performance environments, like do it for me. You know, we talk two-speed economies. I think there's a two-speed sort of career thing that people who just love to be challenged in careers and build that around you. So maybe, ma'am, and we'll kick in there and maybe we'll we'll start back there. Was Collingwood a fairly big first step for you? Because that sounded like a, a quite a pivotal career decision in in hindsight. Yeah, Collingwood was was really a big opportunity for me. And I started out as a bit of an aspiring journalist once upon a time, but probably felt from a fairly early age that I didn't want to just be a journalist, not disrespecting journalism, but I wanted to do probably more than, than at that time, which was predominantly writing. Yep. So kind of drifted into the communications and digital was emerging in a big way. Social media wasn't really a thing, but there was sort of signs of it coming. And, and I was certainly very interested in how brands communicated through websites and digital platforms and I was working for a small digital agency that at the time had the contract to run the AFL website and all the club websites. Right. And I was effectively Collingwood's designated website producer. Right. So I did the classic sort of uh, agency to client side shift where Collingwood invited me to come and work for them in-house, which was just just fantastic. And then only probably about 12 or 18 months into that role where I was effectively the, the digital producer in a very, very small communications team. Uh, and I think Collingwood was one of the only clubs really at that point that even had in-house yep. digital production resources. I had an opportunity to step up into the into the sort of head of comms role. So got a really big break at Collingwood. And I, yep. look, I fully, fully admit I was pretty young at that time and I probably wasn't fully ready or deserving of that role at that time. But the people there at Collingwood gave me an opportunity and I'm forever grateful for that. And I really had to learn on the job and look back now and certainly – um made some mistakes and didn't probably fully understand what I was doing all of the time, but it was a great experience, phenomenal organization to work for and uh, really appreciate what uh, the people at Collingwood did for me in terms of giving me an opportunity for sure. When you get a break like that, Nick, how did you approach knowing that you probably weren't ready for an opportunity that you can't say no to? Mm. How did you calibrate that in terms of dealing with that? Some people would be completely stressed out by that, where others, I guess, will thrive in, under that pressure. How, how do you calibrate that level of jump at the time? Look, at the time, I was very nervous about it. And even to the point where I thought going and sitting on executive team meetings and mm. being a, a sort of a trusted advisor to the CEO, I was questioning, am I ready for this? 
But I really just tried to take the opportunity and say, look, I'm just going to have a crack and try and listen to good people around me and probably acknowledge that some things might work and, and others might not, but just uh, just embrace the opportunity, really. And I was fortunate to have people around me who really wanted me to succeed. And so I I really benefited from that. And also, one of the great things about a club like Collingwood in that sort of period where I was there, I started there at the end of 2006, I was there till 2012. Collingwood went through a period of incredible on-field success, which yep. nothing to do with me, but we as the sort of administration team benefit from that. You sort of become part of that and it makes your job a lot easier when you've got a great product to sell. Yeah. So I just simply embraced that. I, I was very fortunate to be part of such a such a good organization at the time and one that really encouraged me from the president down. It was very much about we want to be out there and we want to be the biggest and best. That's part of our brand. So you as our communications and media person you have license to go and get us onto the back pages, go and tell our stories, go and get us out in the media. And at that point in time, a lot of AFL clubs weren't doing that. They were very you know, very old school in that regard to, well, we don't want to be in the media. We've got to focus on football. Whereas wow. Collingwood, we, we really embraced that idea of getting out there and promoting our brand. So I was very fortunate that a lot of things just really happened for me at the right time. Nick, was the organisation, as you were saying, having on-field success at the time and having this mandate behind the scenes, what did you notice about an organisation that's essentially a different performance level at the time than probably most of the other clubs? And for all our international listeners, Collingwood's probably, if not the premier sporting club in the country. I mean, I think that's pretty fair to say. If not, they're in the top half a dozen in across all codes. But it must have been a different time to be in an organization that had basically was changing the game across all codes at the time. What was it about what they were doing that made it special? One of the things that Collingwood did uh, that others weren't doing was it recognized an opportunity to invest. Um, and an example of that would be it developed its own in-house video production capability and created yep. CTV, Collingwood TV, which at the time was revolutionary. Yep. So we were creating content, pushing it out through our own channels. And now that's completely normal across the board for all, all sorts of brands, brand marketing or whatever you want to call it. But they recognize that opportunity, so they're willing to take some risks. And people might say, oh, but Collingwood was able to do that because it's a big club and it's a wealthy club. Well, yep. only at the turn of the century, Collingwood was effectively bankrupted on its knees. It really had visionary leaders who were willing to take some chances and um, and recognize that the club had a big sort of supporter base. So it was able to, to leverage that invest in things that it thought was going to help the brand grow. And, and then the club really was able to capitalize on that. So I think that it really comes down to the people. I mean, in every organization I've ever been a part of, an organization is only as good as its people. And I think Collingwood just had really good people who were willing to back in ideas, take some risks, invest in things that were seen as being opportunities and allow the club to grow. And then what that did was when the on-field started to really go well, it became this this sort of machine, the off-field, was able to support that. And we became a club that was able to enjoy quite a bit of success. And of course, the club was fortunate to win the premiership in 2010. So there was this this really good mix of great on-field product, which is your core business, winning games of football, yeah. but then also a great team behind the scenes and just full of really, really good people. And that's one of the great memories I have of Collingwood is just the quality of the people that were there. And we worked well together, but we also had some great times together away from the office. And that was that was really important as well. 
I remember back in the day and, and it was really surprising for me because as you said, some of the things you're speaking about have become basically the standard now of what every club needs to do. But at the time, it really was new. And it feels like to me because I was running a promotions company at the time and I remember we were engaged by Collingwood to collect for, I think it was about two months, every member's email address as they walked into games. So there was a team of 30 of us literally going up to every person walking and go, can we grab your email address? Now, this sounds ridiculous now in 2020. But at the time, it felt like that Collingwood had decided we're going to double down on our biggest asset being our member base. And we're going to treat them like no other club in Australia has ever done. For me, it was quite inspiring. Like I was just there running the teams of promo people to do it. But it was sitting there going, the game that they're playing is so far ahead of everyone else in the thinking of how we can change the game in terms of our stakeholder engagement was actually incredibly innovative. It sounds ridiculous now, like get the email address, but it wasn't at the time, was it? No one had captured it properly. No, that's right. And there were some hits and misses, definitely. I look back now and I even remember when we were trying to implement a CRM system, which again, (laughs) was probably something that is very normal now. But at the time, so if someone bought something in the shop, they bought a membership and then they attended the game, they were three completely separate touch points where we didn't capture data We didn't understand if John Smith had done all three of those things. We didn't know that. We only knew that he had done one of those things. So we were trying to implement a CRM system to try and understand our customers and all their habits and all the touch points across the club. And there were some hits and misses in terms of what the club was wanting to do and some of the investment that was required. And But it recognized what it needed to do to become a more sophisticated organization in terms of how it engaged with its customers. So it certainly was really focused on how can we leverage the fact that we have a massive fan base and get those people really well connected into the club so they feel part of it. And that was that then came through. The membership numbers grew really steadily. Yeah. And I remember even sitting in a meeting way back when I think we had about 45,000 fully paid up members, so yeah, season ticket holders. And we put in place a, a bit of a strategy where I think the aim was to grow it to about 60,000 members. And at that time, that was seen as completely ridiculous. Like, there's no way we're going to get to 60,000 members. And of course, now you've got clubs, you know, Richmond's, yeah. Richmond on this coast have got over 100,000 members. Collingwood's right up there as well. So yeah, the club is willing to aim high and I think that paid off. Nick, when you get set a goal like 60,000 members, which at the time is unheard of. How do you calibrate as sort of the communications manager at the time? How do you calibrate something that's never been done before almost and, and being able to work? Did you believe that was possible at the time? Or is this something you have to sort of champion the team to create the belief? What do you do when you get set a target that seems to be so far outside what would be reasonable to expect? I'm sure that at the time... I thought deep down, this is a bit crazy, and I'm I'm sure that other people thought that as well. Yeah. But I think you've got to you've got to make a choice as to whether are you actually going to have a, going to have a crack at this and buy into it and 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 get behind it, or or if you're not going to do that, are you are you really are you really the right person to be in the role that you're in at the time? And a similar situation's happened to me recently, where I was I've been working on the International Cricket Council's T20 World Cup project and. We set ourselves really lofty ambitions about attendance figures for women's cricket, yep. that you know, filling the MCG, the biggest cricket stadium in the world for a women's cricket match, which people laughed at us about and um, didn't think that we could, we could achieve. Yet we were able to, uh, eventually able to achieve our goals. But at the start, even when I walked into that project and that ambition was sold to me, I thought, gosh, that's, yeah. that's ambitious. I'm not sure if that's, that's actually achievable, but eventually, 
you make a decision, you, you either get behind it or you don't. And I think everyone who was part of that project really bought into that ambition. And, and that was one of the reasons why it was possible was because everyone believed in it. The way that we're able to sell that story to, to stakeholders was believable. And I think the same probably applies to back when I was at Collingwood and we had some pretty lofty ambitions. That must be an interesting transition that you've come from sort of a big club like Collingwood. I know there's some some time in between, but it's almost a startup within an established organization that we're doing things differently. You're a young guy that's, as you said, got some skill gaps in terms of that. But I guess that's probably what they were looking for, that entrepreneurial type thinking and people being a little bit out of their comfort zone that probably aren't conditioned to it will or won't work. And now going into the T20, it's sort of that startup probably without the back end of what Collingwood has over a hundred years. Maybe take us forward to there, which is you're essentially starting what from a blank slate when you came into the role? Yeah, that's right. So I joined the T20 World Cup team and I was about the sixth or seventh employee. Wow. And and credit to our, our CEO, Nick Hockley, who had been on the project for some time, along with a couple of other people up until that point, and had really put in place the, the foundations for what we wanted the project to look like. So I came in very early. And one of the things that appealed to me about that opportunity, Tim, was to build a team from scratch, yep. build a media communications community function from nothing and go and find and hire the right people. And I guess in that sense, it was very much like a startup because we had this two and a half year window to achieve something. The thing with major events is it's a very definitive endpoint. If you don't get it right, there's no, okay, well, this year's a bit of a write-off, but let's build that or let's revise that plan for the next financial year and or we can put that off until next year and it'll grow over time. Whereas with a major event, there's a lot of pressure, I guess, in that you have to achieve something by a definitive endpoint, otherwise you've failed. So mm. that really appealed to me about the project and building something from scratch. But one of the other things that appealed to me about that was, again, going back to sort of visionary leaders and bold ambition was that goal of filling the MCG for a women's cricket match, the final of the T20 World Cup. And and I must admit, like when I first heard that, I thought that's a really nice ambition to have, but realistically, we've probably got to put in place contingency plans for that not happening. But as I said before, you buy into it and then you realize that there is a way to achieve this. And and if I'm not on board, well, the people I'm telling the story to are not going to be on board. So I'm going to go all in on this. And everyone who was a part of that project did that. And it just made it really exciting, although incredibly stressful at times when it looked like it was going to be really difficult to achieve what we wanted to achieve. Do you enjoy these condensed high performance periods? You're behaving like an athlete, essentially. It's like getting ready for the Olympics, I guess, which is we need to be prepped. We've got two years. This is what's going to happen. Is that always been something you've enjoyed, that level of pressure on yourself? Yeah, I think I, I think I do because it gives you a very definitive goal. It was very different being in a in a high performance environment like Collingwood, where you are, uh, you do have long term plans, but you're also, uh, well, the team is working towards week to week goals of achieving what they're setting out to achieve on the field, and there's always next year as well. Yeah. But you do set yourself goals along the way, but then you get into a project like a major event and. It's very different where you do all this work over a long period of time for one outcome at the end. There are times over that journey where you think, gosh, is it all worth it given that it's all going to happen over a two-week period and then it's all going to be over. But the satisfaction you get out of seeing it all come together and then being a success and all the spectators being in a stadium, having no idea about all the stresses and and challenges (laughs) that went on behind the scenes, but just seeing a finished product that 
in the public eye looks really good, a little bit like probably releasing a product to market, is something that I really, really enjoyed. And I've been a part of a few different projects now where that's been the case. I was I was fortunate to be part of ANZ Bank when I was living in Singapore and I was working on the project to divest the bank's retail businesses across Asia. And again, you had very definitive endpoints. We were committed to selling those businesses to another bank at a certain time and you have to deliver on that. Otherwise, the ramifications are quite significant. Yeah. And so there is something about having that definitive endpoint that I think creates a bit of a rush and also an urgency and gives you a great thrill when you actually are able to achieve something that you've set out to achieve. Well, let's go there. I mean, you did take a, you left Australia for a few years and maybe take us back to that period because I think it's a very interesting thing, particularly for a lot of our listeners, that this rapid change is something that they're used to in running businesses and sort of trying to be high performance in their lives. Take us back to when you decided to leave the country because you went to Singapore. Was that the first stop in the journey? Yeah, that's right. I'd been in Collingwood for about six years and had an incredible experience there. And my wife had an opportunity to relocate with her business to Singapore. So at that stage in our lives, we're actually we're engaged at the time and didn't have kids. And we thought, what a, what a great opportunity for her and her career, but also for me to probably try something new. So I got to Singapore without a job and having been a reasonably big fish in a very small pond in the, the, the AFL and, and sports world here in Australia, going to Asia and being an absolutely nothing fish in, an, in a massive pond was quite daunting and quite humbling. And getting over there and realizing I'm going to have to reinvent myself a little bit because I was probably applying for jobs that I thought, oh, I'll be... I'll be a pretty good chance for that. And yeah. I couldn't even get a phone call back. And wow. so really had to uh, learn how to sell myself in that environment and thought it was a great opportunity for me to probably get out of sport because sport wasn't a big industry over in over in Asia at that or in Singapore at that point in time. At least there weren't the opportunities that there are here in, in Australia and thought it was a good opportunity to go and try some different things, stay predominantly in the media and communication space, but yeah. go and do some different things. So that's how we, uh, that's how and, and why we, we moved to Singapore. And it was a, it had six years there and it was a fantastic time and, and learned, learned a lot while I was there, had some successes, but also had some failures as well. And just, I think, gained a different perspective on a lot of things while I was there that hopefully I can take forward with me in my career. Did you notice the crossover from a, quite a high-performing organization in Australia to going over to a more traditional corporate roles. Did you notice the approaches being different at all or do people still behave in those ways? Oh, the incredible differences just in terms of the cultural differences in terms of how businesses operate in in a place like Singapore, which, is, which isn't a big country, only about five or six million people, but is really a gateway to the rest of Asia. The attitude there is that it's very much a global city servicing the region. So uh, a lot of businesses have their regional and even in some cases global headquarters there. And you only have to look at the Singapore skyline and see all the logos and realize, gosh, this is a big deal from a business perspective. Yeah. A lot of big global banks and tech companies and other really noticeable brands have a yeah. presence there. And so a lot of people who work in Singapore are doing a lot of travel around the region. They're working in, in companies that have um, big interests across the region. And what you realize is just how big that world is. And I was probably a little naive to that, having been in a, in a much smaller industry here in Australia, thinking that we were a big deal. And we are. And we, we, yeah. we were. And, and sport and football more specifically will always be a big deal in Australia. But then when you go to a place like Singapore and you realize just how big, um, how big the world is. And I think there's, 
one of the other differences I noticed was just the the multicultural aspect to a place like Singapore and there is no one size fits all to the way that you operate in some of these different markets. So you might be in a regional role in a place like Singapore, but then the way that you engage audiences in India is very different to China, is very different to Indonesia, is very different to um, to even Singapore itself. And so you've got to adapt to, as a communications professional, yeah. you have to adapt to that. And that was also something that I learned was just probably gaining a a greater appreciation for different audience segments and understanding what makes them tick and, and how to engage those different audiences in a place like Singapore. How do you go about adjusting to that, Nick? Because I think a lot of challenges that smaller businesses and things like that have is they get the communication very wrong, if not don't value it enough. And not just in terms of the internal stakeholders, but even how they articulate and communicate with their clients and their markets. Where do you see people stuffing that up? Because I mean, the difference between obviously Australia and Singapore, the core principles must still resonate. It's in, I guess, the tactical approach to these people, or is it completely throw out the playbook and and we got to rebuild? I think you've got to listen to those audiences and, and and understand what resonates with them and also understand the different platforms in terms of the technology platforms that those different markets use. So, for example, in a place like China where WeChat is is yeah. massive. Okay, so how do China's audiences, how do they obtain their information through a platform like WeChat yeah. versus a market like Indonesia where it might be Facebook? So, I think you've got to understand what makes those different audiences tick and also which platforms they use. In terms of sort of that discipline around messaging, one thing that I was fortunate to see when I was over in Singapore was a presentation by Jeff Weiner, the CEO of LinkedIn. And at that time, I was working with a CEO who was very skeptical about communications and key messages and reinforcing key messages. And he actually said to me, I'm getting sick of hearing myself roll out these same messages. We were both fortunate to go and see this presentation from Jeff and LinkedIn were renowned as having great employee engagement numbers, did internal communication really well and external communication really well. And anyway, Jeff basically told the audience that only when you as a as a leader or as a communicator are entirely sick of hearing your own message will it start to resonate with your with your audiences. And that was something that I really I really took on board and my CEO actually took on board and it was a bit of a light bulb moment for him because it gave us confidence to know that only when we're getting sick of conveying our own message is it probably starting to resonate with our with our audiences. It is about sticking to a message with a particular audience. And yes, you've got to be authentic. And yes, you do have to have to adapt that message to a different audience. But at the same time, it's really important to maintain consistency and discipline around sticking to that message so that it does start to resonate and that it does start to have an impact on audiences and what you want them to do, um, what actions you want them to take. So there's a really important piece of all that, which is just maintaining discipline around what you are saying and why. Do insights like that and I guess calibrating the thoughts that you probably already have, make it amusing looking back at the start of your career when you look at some of the challenges you have around. I feel like the older we get and the more experienced, the simpler it gets. <laughs> the core things that you would need to focus on becomes almost, as long as we've got those three things in, the rest is sort of going to work itself out. But if we miss those, we've got problems. Yeah, absolutely. I look back on my early days at Collingwood, for example, and we didn't, we didn't have an issues management plan. One of the things about Collingwood was it was a fantastic brand. So when things were going well, yep. the media and the public loved you. But the other side of that is when you stuff up, 
when the yeah. club stuffs up, when a player stuffs up, or when there's a bit of controversy, the media goes twice as hard. <laughs> and here I was almost playing this senior role of protecting the reputation of this organisation. For anyone who's followed um, AFL football or Collingwood knows that Collingwood's had its share of controversies over the journey. <laughs> and there were some times when things went really badly and, and there were some player behaviour issues and we didn't really have a structured way of dealing with that. So I look back on that and think about that sometimes and how I didn't probably fully appreciate the importance of having something as simple as an issues management plan. So we ended up putting one in place, which is really important. Every organization should have one. But kind of to your point about looking back on the early stages of your career and and lessons learned and things that you didn't do that are just so obvious now, yeah. that's one example of that for sure. So you've had six years in Singapore and just time to come back home? I mean, or is it the, the opportunities that pulled you back? Yeah, it was a combination of a few things. One of them was that my wife, who obviously was the reason we moved over there in the first place, she also had an opportunity to come back to Australia with the same company. And we also just felt like the time was right as well. So a few things aligned there. We'd had two children who were both born in Singapore and we'd been a long way from most of our family for, for a long time as well. So we just felt like the time was right to come home. So yeah, six years was a great stint and we came back and again, I was looking for work and then I had this burning desire to get yeah. back into sport, having not been in that industry for, for the duration of my time in Singapore. And then the opportunity with the International Cricket Council T20 World Cup came up and it felt like a great fit at the time. And I'm really pleased that it worked out the way that it did and, and that I was part of that. I've been part of that project. What have you enjoyed most about that? Because I mean, it's a very exciting part of cricket internationally, obviously T20 over the last decade, but it's a very exciting area of a well-established sport. What do you enjoy most about being in this type of environment? Yeah, one of the things that I've really enjoyed about being part of this project is the impact that I genuinely feel like the event has had on the growth of the women's game and, yeah. and what that can do as a legacy for women's sport, women's cricket and women's sport more broadly. So to put some perspective around that, the highest attendance for an Australian international women's cricket match before our tournament in Australia was 4,000 people. We were getting crowds of about 5,000 right across the tournament. We started with about 13,000 in the opening match, big crowds across the tournament. And then for the final of the MCG, more than 86,000, which I mean, if you'd said a few years ago that you'd ever get yeah. that many people to a women's cricket match at the MCG. And that, that's that's a domain reserved for Anzac Day football, yeah. for Boxing Day test matches, for big concerts. But a women's cricket match, it was kind of unheard of. So I'm, re I'm really proud of what that has done for putting some more prominence around women's cricket, women's sport. And, and hopefully it becomes more normal now to see big crowds at women's sport in this country, partly because of what the public was able to see through the Women's T20 World Cup. And there are things like the FIFA Women's World Cup that are coming up in Australia in 2023. So hopefully they can build on that legacy and, yeah. and continue the momentum around women's sports. So that's that's something that I'm, I'm most proud of. And being a father of a young girl as well, knowing that she was there and she was probably too young to really appreciate it. But it's something we can talk about years down the track when I can say to her that we were there together watching a women's cricket game with you know, nearly 90,000 people at the MCG where previously that hadn't been done before. You must be very proud of contributing in such a way to that. To me, on a timeline, that's a defining moment in Australia, particularly of women's sport, regardless of the code and the great things that are happening. But when we track that, it's a pivot point in terms of the game is broken there and it, it won't ever go back. You know, it's an incredible thing. You must be extremely proud of what you and the team were able to achieve. I am very proud of it. And it was a massive team effort, as you say. And it wasn't just the 60 or 70 of us in the 
in the organising committee. It was all of Australian cricket. We had incredible support from governments, from broadcasters, from commercial partners. So it genuinely was a massive team effort. But I am very proud of it. We were unbelievably lucky with COVID. <laughs> having obviously had such an impact globally. But the final of our event was on the mark, was on Sunday, the 8th of March. And COVID was very much a thing at that point, but it hadn't quite impacted Australia as, as much as it would go on to do. But only really 72, 48, 72 hours later, it might have been a different story. And then the following weekend was the Australian F1 Grand Prix in Melbourne, which ended up being cancelled the day prior. Yeah. So timing wise, we were unbelievably lucky. Now we've we've suffered at the other end because we were supposed to have the men's T twenty World Cup in October, November this year. And part of the whole journey and and what was going to be exciting was actually delivering two World Cups in one year in Australia. So that's obviously disappointing. But that the men's event has been postponed by two years. So hopefully that goes ahead and is a massive success in twenty twenty two. But we're unbelievably lucky, Tim, just from a timing perspective that we were able to get the event away before the full impact of COVID was felt. Yeah, it really was quite significant for those who are looking from overseas. It's It was really important. I mean, women's sport is, for our generation, it's going to be a defining moment of sort of our lifetimes, not just the ramifications of sport, but how it's culturally changing the way that women are seen in, particularly in Australian culture, but globally. I mean, this is a really important movement that is way too many years of neglect prior to this, but at least we can say that it's going in the right direction, thanks to people like you that are actually championing this in the right way, because there's not only an appetite for it, but it's the right thing to do. I certainly didn't appreciate that before I probably came onto this project. I mean, yeah, I was part of the team that put on the event, but if you're talking about champions, so one of the most special things about it was actually a lot of the former women's champion cricketers and athletes more broadly, but especially the cricketers who were there at the final and who were involved in the tournament. Many of them, you could see them getting quite emotional when they were there standing at the MCG, looking up around the stand, seeing that the venue was packed and... Previously, they'd only ever played in front of empty venues and some of the legends of the game, like Belinda Clark, who cricket fans probably know, but she's probably not a household name if you don't follow cricket, but she's a legend of Australian cricket. And she tells the story about when she played in the World Cup in 1997, the women's players had to buy their own tracksuits and fund their own trip over to India to play in the World Cup. And when they got back, they were fortunate there was a publican a wealthy Australian publican who contributed to funding their trip. But back in those days, Australian men's cricketers at that time were were making huge money and obviously continue to do so. The women's cricketers were having to fund their own trips. Hopefully, through events like the T20 World Cup, the opportunities for for women's cricketers and, and women's athletes more broadly become greater and the, and the greater exposure really helps the evolution of, of women's sport. And certainly, if you look at things like the broadcast numbers from that final, 1.2 million people, I think, watched across Channel 9 and Fox yeah. Sports here in Australia and the numbers globally were, were massive. Fortunately, the Australian team played India and India are mad about cricket and some of the numbers that came out of India, digital and broadcast numbers were just incredible. So, yeah, look, hopefully it's one step on a journey towards women's sport becoming something much bigger than it has been in the past, but also all those female athletes like Belinda Clark who have done so much for building the foundations of the game to this point, their work and and their efforts um, uh, don't go to waste and that cricket and and women's sport flourishes in the future. Absolutely. There's an, an enormous debt for all the past players. Not that the current players are receiving the benefits that we know they will sort of over the next few years, but the past players who were doing it just for the love of doing it and performing. 
Nick, let me ask you, for all people listening now that are probably in the infancy of building their teams in terms of their companies, where do you begin when you're trying to put together a high-performance team or people that you believe will be able to deliver? Are there things that you look for in the type of people or the style of leadership in which you like to approach a new build of a team? A really simple rule that my CEO at the T20 World Cup had when we were building out our plans. And admittedly, it was very daunting because I'd only ever really come into organizations that probably had reasonably well-established plans. They might not have been great ones. They might have been great ones. But your role was to probably come in and and modify or reset or build again. Whereas for this project, it was really about building from scratch. A very simple rule was just build your plan and then resource your plan. And I think that once we're able to have that plan in place and we knew what types of roles that we needed to fill, I think it's really important to go and find people that you feel like will be a great cultural fit and that their character will hold up under pressure. And it's not just about having great skills or great CVs, but people who are going to make it a good place to come to work every day. And I'm really proud of the team that we built at the T20 World Cup, for example, where I think we just had, we just had really, really good people, incredibly hardworking, some incredibly smart people and accomplished people. But across the board, just really good people who who were there for the right reasons. And it's not just about going out and socializing with your colleagues, but it's just about people who bring the right attitude and understand when the pressure is on, how to maintain a, a level head. And I'm certainly guilty of, of feeling the pressure at times. And it's not always easy to do it because if you're interviewing someone through a process to hire for a role, it's, it's not always easy to actually find out what that person's really like. Sometimes it just, you only find that out once you start working with them, but just really high quality, good character people. And I, I really believe in that. And if you can mix that in with them being obviously smart people who bring a good work ethic, then I think you're on your way to, to building a really successful team. Do you think when you get the right people, is it something you need to manage or do the right people self-manage? Do you find that something you need to focus on, as in the ongoing um, culture within the team? Is that something that a leader in your position should be managing, or do you leave it to the the right people to work it out? I think really good people often find a way to work things out, but it's important as a leader to give them the confidence to know that they have the backing of leadership to go and work it out. It's 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 a really good question, but the other thing is sometimes you'll bring people into an organization and you realize, oh, they've actually got a bit of a skill set that perhaps we didn't necessarily hire for. So you can yeah. kind of adapt the role or the responsibility to what that person actually brings to the table. And I think mm-hmm. that's important as well. Don't always be so rigid as to only demand from an individual what was on their job description. Yeah. So you can kind of allow people to you can allow really good people to go and figure it out themselves. But as I said before, if they know that they have the backing and the confidence of senior management. I go back to my first, one of my early experiences at a place like Collingwood. And even earlier than that, when I was working in a digital agency that gave me my starts, a small digital agency called Sportal, I felt like I had the backing of the key people. When people give you that confidence, I think it really helps you to thrive and know that, well, you know what, if you make a mistake here and there, that's okay. And you can learn from that and build on that. I think giving those people the confidence to know that they've been hired for a reason because they're good, they're smart, and they've got the full confidence of the people who have hired them. I think that's really important. I couldn't agree with you more. I mean, we have this discussion a lot, and I think particularly your experience at Collingwood's in such a pivotal time. We used to laugh because a lot of us in Australia follow AFL particularly with uh, 
with a passion, so to speak, but it was about knowing that B-grade players being put into an environment, they would become A-grade players. And we'd look at other teams at the time that were struggling and you could take an A-grade player and put it in their environment and they'll be a B-grade player the year after. And there, there is something about that cultivation of culture and environment, regardless of whether it's managed, but it really is a, a magical formula at times, isn't it? Because you just see that people get more out of themselves as soon as you plug them into something that's got standards and performance habits that everyone's just used to. They almost fall in line or don't. No, absolutely. And I, I, I saw that at Collingwood firsthand where I think in Collingwood's 2010 premiership team, there were seven or eight players who had come from rookie lists. Yeah. So certainly weren't the young superstars, weren't the prodigies that a lot of the, the other players were, but had come into an, an environment where I think Collingwood had set up a really good development program, were able to identify the um, skills and strengths of various players and then really develop those. And again, it comes back, I think, just to having really good people who are in place within the organization. And I think that applies to any organization, whether you're building a startup, whether it's a, an elite high-performance sporting organization, whether it's a multinational. Don't just rely on the brand or what's on the wall in terms of the mission statement. You've actually got to really focus on making sure that you've just got really, really good people. And, and, I, and I've seen that time and time again throughout my career, I think. What do you enjoy most about being in an environment like that? What is it for you? Because I mean, I met a lot of people like, they liked it for a period in their life. There's not a lot that keep jumping from performance environment to performance environment. What do you love most about being in these sort of teams? I've been fortunate to work with some great people. And I think that's something that motivates me. And learning learning from people who are who are really accomplished and really supportive. I've been really fortunate to work with some incredibly supportive people. So that's that's really helped me. So I think I'm I think I am drawn to working with really good people. And that's probably a really accomplished people. That's probably something that's common through high performance environments. I know even just going back to my time at, at ANZ Bank when I was working on on the divestment project. And the people who were running that project, I mean, that was run with military precision. And I gained such an appreciation for project management and not missing a step. For example, I mean, a bank the size of ANZ is being so heavily scrutinized by regulators, by shareholders, by the media. You cannot make a misstep. Whereas even at an organization like perhaps at Collingwood Football Club, you're not beholden to shareholders. You're not beholden to the same regulatory environment. So some of the people that that I worked with at ANZ were just were incredibly good at what they do. And I learned a lot. So I think I've been very fortunate to work with good people over the journey. And those people motivate me to hopefully want to make myself a little bit better each time I take on a new challenge. Nick, just to wind up our conversation, I really do appreciate you sharing this because I know the insights that you've had, particularly in these organizations, which are sort of gold standards in the industry, it'll be very insightful for a lot of our listeners. And I certainly appreciate the conversation. But let me finish with this question. With the people you've worked with and the organizations you've been involved with, what would you like them to describe your legacy, the way you perform? What do you like to think your contribution to these teams are? That's an interesting question. Uh, hopefully, hopefully, I'm considered a good team member. I do think that's really important that you find a way to be a really good colleague um, who tries to help others and who tries to help make others better, but also maybe someone who hopefully I'd like to think of myself as someone who is continually trying to get better and learn. And I've always been appreciative of the of the really good people around me and, and trying to learn as much as I can from them. Um, 
but also not being afraid to put really smart people around you who might be a little bit or a lot better at, uh, than you at certain things because you can also learn from those people as well. So, yeah, look, hopefully, hopefully each time I've been part of one of these organizations, the people around me and the people that I've, I've worked with consider me to have been a, a good team member who has made a contribution and, and worked, worked hard to help reach the end outcome, I think. Mate, thank you so much for your time. It's been, um, for me, an insightful conversation. It's something I know our listeners are really going to enjoy. Thanks, Tim. Appreciate the invitation. It was uh, really good to come on and chat to you. And well done with the podcast. I'm reasonably new to it, but I've listened to a few of your recent episodes and really enjoyed it. So I'll, uh, I'll, keep, I'll keep listening in. Well done. <laughs> Thank you, mate. Well, that's the show for this week. Thanks for listening. And of course, if you head on over to backable.ai, you can access all the downloadables we've put together. Now, if you want to stay up to date with all things Backable and Philodomo, then make sure to join our Facebook group and follow us on one or all of the platforms you can find in the show description below. As always, if you have enjoyed this week's podcast, please don't forget to like, subscribe and leave a review. That's all from us for now. Have a great week and we look forward to speaking with you next week. Bye.